1: Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Kate will speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today is one of the most recognizable women in British politics. First promoted under David Cameron in 2014, she held a number of junior ministerial positions before joining Theresa May's cabinet as International Development Secretary. Two years later, she became the UK's first female Defence Secretary. After two tilts at the Conservative leadership last year, she now attends Cabinet as Leader of the House of Commons, working with parliamentary business managers to schedule and announce the government's legislative timetable. There is also a pastoral element to this role, which means she is seen in some quarters as a sort of union rep for backbench MPs. My guest's background is in the armed forces, which have toughened her up, a welcome attribute in what has been a tumultuous few years in British politics. My guest today is Penny Mordaunt. So Penny, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, we've been trying to get you to come on this podcast for years, so it's, it's a true, <laughs> truly ple- pleasant to see you across the room to me. Well, um, <laughs> pers- perseverance, there we go. Exactly. <laughs> now, uh, we always begin by asking our guests the same question, which is, did you have a happy childhood?
0: Yes, I did. Um, I was blessed with wonderful parents who loved us and did the best for us. So yeah, I had a, I had a very happy childhood.
1: I'm right to say that your mother did pass away, and at that point you became a carer for your brother.
0: So I was a I was a carer aged um, thirteen. Um, that's when my mum became ill, and very sadly she she passed away when I was fifteen. She was just forty six. I have a twin brother and a younger brother, and it was pretty it was pretty tough. But and I tend not to talk about it too much because it does sound like the um, saddest tune played on the smallest violin. But what it taught me was self-reliance it taught me to help other people including your family you need to be capable and it taught me resilience and I think it was the starting point for my political path in life and you went on to become the first in your family to
1: go to university correct and so you studied philosophy I studied philosophy
0: we're fully qualified to have arguments. That's
1: yeah, exactly. My editor was earlier saying all arts degrees were useless, and I was saying, hold on a minute. <laughs>
0: it's uh, it's actually it's been shown to be one of the most applicable degrees because it teaches you logic and argument I think most professions use use that every day did you have to do logic
1: modules before I make this a philosophy podcast because when I I did mine at Durham you were at Reading yeah yes and I I think lots of people got a nasty surprise when we were told we had to do equations in our first year
0: (laughs) so I I was always someone that was more Mm. drawn to metaphysics and and logic I'm sorry to break this to you my dissertation was on time so I wasn't were you were you ethics and all the frilly stuff
1: I was a bit all over the place, but I did do the most frilly dissertation of all time. What was your dissertation? It was romantic love. Right. Can you get more frilly? It was basically, which is a bit metaphysics, I think. It was the idea that um, that is not, none of the, if you look at the classic philosophers, romantic love is never taken very seriously. So it's platonic love, Aristotle's friendship, Descartes' love of God, and often it was like an animal instinct and, and why I was that. And I managed to quote the Spice Girls in that, and they still passed. So Brilliant.
0: Well done. That's great. You've got the full full spectrum of uh, options on philosophy represented today. Exactly. Now, um, so you're studying philosophy, and
1: at what time, at what point, do you, I, I suppose, start to have political interest? Did it start early on in life? Because you talked about that self-reliance will come quite a bit later.
0: So I think it was the experience of my upbringing, the fact that that taught me that... Um, when services don't work for people, where you don't have uh, a large amount of money around, what governments do and what public services do really matters. But prior to going to university, I spent some time in the former Eastern Bloc, Romania in particular after the revolution, and that, I think, got me really involved in politics because I just saw the power of what politics could do in that situation for great ill but it just struck me as it was a very, very powerful force and uh, and dehumanising and uh, and and very unpleasant in the in the wrong hands. So I think that's what got me interested in politics. But I did not think I would ever be in frontline politics. That was never my ambition. And did you ever? Did you feel tribal or party political or? Not so much. I mean, you you do in the course of what you do in, in Parliament, um, particularly for me on a Thursday morning. But I'm, I'm always interested in people, whatever their political views, whatever their background, um, whether it's people in my constituency or actually people who, who get into Parliament. So I think uh, there's that tribal aspect to it, but uh, sometimes we're, we're better when uh, that, that isn't front and centre. Um, now, before you became an
1: MP, uh, you spent time in America... You worked on uh, George W. Bush's re-election campaign. I suppose now you have the perspective of UK politics compared to American politics. What what was that
0: experience like? Um, so I, I worked on his first campaign in two thousand, and that that was sort of my first foray. But I'd done I'd, I'd done some work uh, with the White House and did do some work on the on the two thousand and four campaign. The similarities are are very stark. I mean, it's there's a lot of a uh, lot of differences, the, the amount of money involved, and uh, all sorts of other things. But actually, the similarities are are greater. And I'm I think at the moment, you know, the work that Liam Fox is doing in particular with Conservative Friends of America is some of the most important work around. I think the Republican Party is a very important political movement, and it needs to find its soul again. I'm always very interested in that because. The US is such a close partner and ally and I want them to have healthy political debate and I think that's helped by sensible Republican voices being heard.
1: Yeah, because at the moment they're still in the midst of picking a candidate, aren't they?
0: They are. There's uh, there's lots of action going on and uh, yeah. stand by.
1: <laughs> the rumoured return of Donald Trump. <laughs>
0: Then obviously you come
1: back to the UK and I think you were selected as a candidate in 2005, is that right?
0: Yes. So I fought the seat, got a 5.5% swing in 18 months, but it wasn't enough to, to get me in. It was a, quite a healthy Labour majority, but persevered, stuck it out and, uh, and restood.
1: And when you were going for it in 2005... I wonder if you just can't help but start to think maybe it'll be, uh, that you might just win because you're putting so much time into it. Were you surprised when you didn't get it? At
0: that point, I was I was not experienced. I didn't really know what to expect. You, um, I mean, I didn't sort of get much help from the party because they weren't expecting me to win. I think they were quite surprised at the size of the swing I got. But you know, you 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 have to plan for every eventuality in this uh, in this business. I've spoken about, you know, the letter Thatcher wrote me to carry on. And I think part of the battle to, to be successful in this line of work is the ability to carry on and to know why you're doing things and be determined about achieving them. So the rest is history.
1: <laughs> um, so you enter Parliament in 2010. What surprised
0: you? I think you, I'd, I'd been in the building before and it's still i mean it's still an amazing place to to work you never you never kind of get complacent about the fact that it's just an amazing place and a and a privilege to be there i came in during the coalition and i think we were always sort of telling ourselves how unstable that was and uh, how bizarre a situation it was but it turned out to be actually one of the most stable, stable governments uh, um, in terms of sort of, you know, the referendum and everything that went after that. And also just the length of it. Well, it was, uh, yeah, you know, a pretty uh, pretty solid innings. So that was unusual. But again, our, f- our first experience coming in in 2010, working with um, people that we'd uh, been fighting with only moments before,
1: um yeah and as you say it's funny looking back on it and um, obviously when the Tories then won a majority in 2015 I think that's, well, now things get really stable um <laughs> and instead um there's a referendum And I think you know most already know you campaigned for leave yes. uh, j- during that referendum and uh, I suppose when you come into parliament particularly if you're seen as a rising star I know everyone hates the phrase <laughs> you're um kind of climbing up and you're working, uh, you know, to to impress those above you. Is it tricky when, obviously, you then choose a path, which is quite different to what the...
0: So I think you have to... Politics is a team sport and you you work as a team and I think that's very important I'm not someone that's permanently rebelling but there are moments when you have a choice to make I'd I'd been on the naughty step before in 2000 and well under the under the coalition government pre me coming to ministerial office when I decided to rebel and was one of the lead rebels on lord's reform leading to I think, the largest government uh, defeat since uh, since uh, the war, the last war. Um, and But that was really important because we would have trashed our constitution. We would have undermined the primacy of the House of Commons. And uh, it was a crazy proposal. I'm very pro-Lord's reform. I've written about it. But uh, I think you need sensible Lord's reform, and that was not. So I, I had rebelled on that. And I was also just very conscious, I was at the time of the referendum, I was Armed Forces Minister, I felt that we had to show some stability, and we were getting on with uh, things that really mattered. So I hadn't initially p- planned to play a major role in, in the referendum campaign. But I was very uh, worried about how the campaign from government was being formulated. And so I thought, you know, this is, this is too important, I have to step up and say what I think about this
1: yeah and I suppose it's one of those things where almost do it half in doesn't work as you know you get invested in these campaigns as, as they go on particularly if
0: you feel it strongly yes I think it I'm, and although I mean people are very hungry to see and feel the difference that the, the Brexit dividend will make to them I think we are now starting to to see that just in terms of the, the work we've been doing in trade, the accession in CPTPP, 6,000 tariff lines gone, the, the regulation, the, a lot of what I do in the job that I have at the moment, all those statutory instruments that are going to really help get our our statute book modern and fit for purpose.
1: And we've got retained EU law.
0: Yes, <laughs> yes, all that.
1: <laughs> Though that could take a little bit longer. Uh,
0: we're, we're cracking on. <laughs>
1: But I think you will have some things to point to by the time of the next election. Now, you uh, clearly have had, held lots of different positions under Theresa May. You, as I mentioned in the introduction, international development, a department that is no longer a single department. And then you were briefly defence secretary, made history. And then Boris Johnson comes in and all of a sudden you don't keep the role. And it's that sign of almost that turbulence the Lib Dem coalition years, obviously looking much calmer, where things can change very quickly. What was it like going back to the backbenchers after having A, such a senior job, but one that I think lots of people you were very suited to and were really just at the beginning
0: of? So look, I think in any government role, in any circumstances, you, you have to have things you can get done in a few weeks and you have to have things you are planning to do in three to five years you just have to approach every job in that fashion. And I thought I might only have a short time in that role. So I had a list that I cracked through, including giving armed forces personnel um, a pay rise so that for the first time they were, all of them were earning above the national living wage. I thought it was crazy and wrong that we were paying such, our, our lowest paid armed forces personnel such a such a low salary so um i did that i got a, I got a few things done that i felt were were really important and uh you know did a did a proper handover to to ben who i think has done an amazing job in in, in the role yeah and um, so you weren't that surprised when you
1: got that government. no <laughs> okay <laughs> we'll leave that one there <laughs> and um of course then we have a situation where boris johnson ultimately is no longer prime minister and you go for the leadership not once but twice and it felt in the first leadership contest which I suppose probably feels like the full leadership contest the second one <laughs> a, little, a little bit <laughs> shorter it really felt like you were very very close to making that final two um if you think you know those tiny numbers before you got to that point how did you find the campaign because it it got pretty blue on blue at points. Were you surprised by some of the vitriol you experienced?
0: So, look, I think you you can only control your own behaviour, and I I didn't behave like that. I think you, I understand that the stakes are very high, but I think you have to. I mean, I said to my campaign team, you we have to campaign as we would govern, and if we're not doing that, we're not being true to ourselves. So, no, I was I was. Happy with the campaign that we we ran. You can't control what other people do; you can only control how you respond to that.
1: And have you found since um, you know those campaigns have ended? Obviously, it almost feels and you almost see with the SNP leadership contest at the moment. It's not unique to any one party, but there's there tends to be so much inviting, and then you've got to almost put it all back in the box. <laughs> um, and obviously, for example, you know, Suella Braverman had some criticism. You know, big round trans issues. But do you find it fine now just kind of reverting back to being professional colleagues when, when you've seen some of Well,
0: yes. I mean, that's just yeah. what I do. And uh, as I say, people are responsible for, for their own actions. In all of this, you have to remember why you're doing it. And actually, it's not about any of us, it's about the people we're here to serve, and I just feel that very strongly. And and when we forget that, that's when we let people down, and we become the Westminster bubble. We always have to drag ourselves back to the to the real world, and uh, and, and that's why I think the fact that we have to eyeball our constituents uh, every Friday and over the weekends and hear what they think about what we're doing is a very valuable aspect of our system. Yeah, I'm sure we've
1: had some interesting ones. <laughs> it's, it's- Um, Now I want to talk about your roles lead of the house very final thing just on the leadership I wanted to ask you was because we did have two leadership contests so you had the second one where you ran again Boris Johnson never officially went for it (laughs) (laughs) but I think we had enough evidence um, to suggest that was very close to happening and of course Rishi Sunak and yourself. Now when Boris Johnson uh, decided that he was not going to run Um, and there's quite a lot of pressure placed on you to also stand down before there are any votes and I wonder why was it that you kind of pressed on with that?
0: So uh, clearly you have all sorts of people offering you all sorts of things to withdraw but I felt that I couldn't and there were a couple of reasons for that I mean first of all people put your the trust in you that you're going to run and do your best to try and form a contest and I felt that whatever the outcome of a contest, it would be better to have one because it was only going to be another four days, and I think it would have um, it would have been beneficial for all kinds of reasons to have had that. So I thought it was the right thing to do to press on. But also, I think you uh, you know when people put their their trust in you and say you're going to carry this out, you you have to do that. And I I think we had to demonstrate to the public and particularly Conservative Party members, that this wasn't a stitch up, that everything had been done to test the will of the Parliamentary Party and give them that option. And I think that if we couldn't have a contest, achieving that was the most important thing. So yes uh, that's that's why i felt that was the right thing to do to to
1: kind of get to the point and say well this is why we haven't gone to the grassroots we have exhausted
0: all possible avenues and i i think that is a that is an important thing
1: now let's talk about your role today which is leader of the house you seem to it was quite funny before you came in one of our colleagues came in and we mentioned you were coming on they were just like very excited, but also <laughs> saying you've you know transformed business questions. I think there's now a lot of interest in what you say. Um, you have quite a few jokes when you're kind of talking about the, the business of the house and what's coming up. We recently had, a, I think, a Gary Lineker one, <laughs> for example. How do you spend your time writing them? Do you put
0: lots of time into it or does it come quite naturally? So, the, I mean, the great thing about business questions is you have no idea what is going to be asked. And... So you have to be a cross-government business. That's the most important thing. Um, I mean, the, if if I can be witty, this is a bonus. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. not the oh, it's not sure. the main main it purpose.
1: It wouldn't work if you didn't already know what you were doing. No, no,
0: exactly. So and and actually, it is an important function. And you'll have seen, you know, I do go into bat for MPs when either departments aren't uh, delivering answers for them. We've we've had some good successes. I shall claim them as business question successes. But we had a colleague was campaigning about a particular aspect of british gas policy within hours they'd reversed it we managed to time a whole load of questions about the bbc singers um and we had another very pragmatic bbc u-turn uh, shortly afterwards so it can be a very effective section of the of the parliamentary week if if people are using it uh, using it well but i also think that when we're kind of at our best in in the house we are we are tough and we are decisive about what it is we want to say and the policies that we're we're setting out. But I think we can also do it in a way that is polite, good-humoured, gives credit where credit is due for for backbenchers from all sides of the House who are doing good stuff for their constituents. And I just think that's why people like it, as well as, obviously, jokes at the SNP's expense, which is... Always, always good value on Twitter.
1: And how did you find it when Gary Lineker tweeted at you?
0: <laughs> I think I got 7 million views for my monologue against a Labour Party policy, which I think is three times the Match of the Day audience. So I was quite happy about it.
1: Yeah, well, especially also the audience um, went up the day they had no presenters. <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, And we mentioned the introduction, uh, obviously... You, the point you make about you know being there to kind of
0: not look after but you're there for the back benches and in, in your role um, so i'm i'm government's representative in parliament and parliament's representative in government yeah. and i wondered i mean
1: do you think parliament could be modernized further if you look uh, you know i think andrea ledson who has one of your key supporters um, when you uh, went for the leadership has you know did quite a lot on this um i, I wanted you know could it be more woman friendly? Lots of people talk about, you know, more remote voting. Do you think there's scope in that? There,
0: there is. I mean, I write about this in in greater. We we have to move at the speed business and science needs us to. And there's nothing more depressing than talking to a, a constituent in my surgery who's just ordered something online, which is going to arrive that afternoon, and I have to tell them why the thing they really care about is going to take four years to deliver. This is uh, we we have all sorts of new possibilities now with technology and and how we can use data to actually deliver better for for people. And I think that my ambition is that our parliament needs to be the best in the world. We're doing some new things. We're doing a huge survey of members and staff about what they need to get them to be reaching their full potential for for their constituents. We're benchmarking ourselves against G7 equivalents. And part of that is about how you enable a very diverse range of individuals to absolutely deliver whenever they you know, come into, into Parliament. So there's a huge piece of work going on there, and we've also been able to have some influence back into Whitehall as well. They're standing up at the moment the first ever ministerial HR function, so really properly supporting ministers to to deliver for, for the country. Yeah.
1: And um, we also have, we're about modernisation of Parliament, that also applies to the building... <laughs> restoration still going on you said previously it would be nice perhaps if if uh, MPs do have to move out of parliament that they toured across the UK
0: so I think these this is all to be decided but we do have some new options I mean we in Covid we used electronic voting which cost about 1.3 million we used it for eight days we have many more options now to how we can actually have debates, hold votes. And what I'm trying to do is ensure that we've got our restoration renewal programme really focused on the work that needs to be done, as opposed to abstract questions about, should we be in or out of the building? What is the actual work that needs doing? And then how can we build what we do around that, that work? And of course, we've got more options, and we should try and seek opportunities within that. If we have to leave the building, what are the opportunities that that come with that? So, I'm hoping that we will we will arrive at some answers in the next uh, 12 months, and we can everyone can go into a, a new election knowing what is going to happen in future years to, to preserve what is an incredible heritage building.
1: Now, the Privileges Committee, obviously, is ongoing into Boris Johnson Partygate and whether well, uh, he intentionally misled Parliament. You issued uh, you know some guidance ahead of the sitting about how. MPs on the committee should be respected they should not be intimidated. do you think all Tory MPs have listened to you <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, I'm still hearing the word kang- the words kangaroo call <laughs> I know i I'm, I'm gently uh, reminding uh, all colleagues that actually the whole house asked the privileges committee to, there was not a dissenting voice so having asked decent colleagues to do this work, we owe it to them to let them get on. They, they are doing the House a service by doing this. And actually, all colleagues on there, but uh, you know, I'm particularly thinking of ones that have come under particular pressure, Conservative members, Sir Bernard, Sir Charles Walker, um, Andy Carter, and uh, Alberto Costa. These are very decent people people know that they're incredibly decent people and honest and will be approaching this with due care and and rigor and feel a sense of duty and we should uh, not whatever our views and our personal views about um about Boris who you know I I like very much we cannot let that narrative and that w- will to defend him and talk about that uh, that whole episode Uh, we we can't allow that to drift into criticising, totally unjustly, very good people. So when
1: the result comes through you'll be reminding people of this I suppose I,
0: I think you'll find that I'm reminding people on a pretty much hourly basis Katie about these, these very these are very important things I'd l- like to see your WhatsApps <laughs> now, now, the final question is one we ask
1: everyone on this podcast which is um, what is the worst advice you've ever been given and you mentioned of course earlier that you receive lots of advice when you're going for the leadership so I wonder if that would be it or if it would be something
0: earlier I'm, on I'm disturbed Katie that you ask this question uh, at the end of your your podcast because actually if I was given bad advice I certainly I certainly wouldn't repeat it so I'm going to be true to my unconventional self and I'm I'm only going to give you good advice and I've received many bits of good advice one revelation to me was was confidence follows preference I think if you if you do something you love and you know what it is that you really love that the chances are you're going to be good at it I think this is this is true in any walk of life and in any case so My advice is find out what it is you love and do that with your life.
1: Okay. Thank you, Penny. Thank you for joining today.